Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Somebody Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5. Hello, everybody. It's your camouflaged hunter alien, Holden McNeely. I got lasers in my arms. Pew, 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 pew. And fucking hand blades. Top that shit, Jake. Hi, it's me, Jesse the Body Ventura. You don't have enough chaw in your mouth for this impression right now. This stuff will make you a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus. That's a nasty habit. I ain't got time to bleed. (laughs) Old painless. God, there's so many one-liners in this movie, by the way. I'm holding a helicopter chain gun. Do you realize how ludicrous this is? (laughs) The first... I'm just asking questions. Follow the money. The first ten minutes of this movie is is literally just one-liners that could be like the one-liner of any action movie. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like the nasty habit, all that kind of stuff. It is knock knock. <laughs> when he was... kicks down the door. Oh the... yeah, it is so. No, no, he funny. jabs a knife and someone's like, "Stick around." <laughs> like it's yes. Looney Tunes shit. I love how Schwartz. All right, we're talking about the uh, the film, The Predator, by the way, today. And by the way, we are just talking about the first movie. I think there's definitely a Wizard of the Rooster in the future where we'll talk about the whole franchise. Because let me ask you this, Jake: Did we only cover the first Alien movie too? When we covered the first Alien, we covered Alien the movie, but we didn't cover anything else right because I, I feel like the whole franchise for alien and the whole franchise predator that'll almost be like i feel like at some point that could be its own episode today just the predator but and going- in both instances they kind of fuck up the core premise which is that these are self-contained movies yes, yes. that just are talking about like a themes and tones and like messages and and kind of and an individual experience with just a little bit of like story lore in there to make it like spicy yeah yeah and then everyone picked up like these nuggets and are just like this is what it was about (laughs) what do the rings on their head tentacles mean we'll make eight video games about it right totally totally it's so that that shit is so so funny but how could you not i mean it is just the perfect property for a bunch of ridiculous spin-offs. It's such a fun creature. It's such a fun monster. And also, I feel like, well, I wanted to go back to the one-liner thing because I was like laughing my ass off at the end there because Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's facing off with this alien who has no idea what he's saying mm-hmm. and there's no one else around him and he's still doing one-liners. You are one if- ugly motherfucker. <laughs> 
It's so good. And uh, the story of the making of it's so wonderful. Even the, but even the Predator gets witty at the end because it's like, what the hell are you? What the hell are you? He starts laughing like an <laughs> evil man. <laughs> Dude, it was so good. I, I love the Predator. Let's start with the gush. Let's get into it. The Predator, the film, if you haven't seen it, it is just like this big action movie. Don't say The Predator. The Predator is the Shane Black movie that oh, came right, out Oh, right, right, right. Predator, Predator, not The Predator. My it, bad. I, I didn't realize. Yeah, it's just Predator. Yeah, Shane Black's The Predator is about how all the aliens want to get autism juice out of humans. This is- this Actual is, plot point. I'm not making <laughs> that up. This is Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is early Arnold Schwarzenegger, too. This is like- this is Arnold Schwarzenegger essentially proving to everybody that he can be this badass action star that he's going to go on to be after this film. You've got uh, just a motley crew of assholes, of just muscle-bound, beautiful assholes, multiple governors, uh, future, future <laughs> governors, professional wrestlers. Uh, you've got, you know. So I actually never saw this movie. I like I remember looking up like the Predator scenes just when I was in a big ooky-gooky monster kind of mood. But I never actually sat down and watched it beginning to end. And it is damn near perfect. McTiernan directs the shit out of this yeah, movie. It's great. Every it's... line kind of like pays forward or does like a little bit of heavy lifting in terms of character acting yeah. or character uh, motivation. It, it never stops. Like it's it's quiet moments are there for a reason and they're very sparse and they're incredibly tense and all about tension building. Great jokes about it, giant vaginas. It's also, the, the thing I love about Predator is- You're not going to give me anything on that, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the See, here's the problem. You're a fucking poncho and I'm a Hawkins <laughs> and we're the runs of the litter. We're definitely going to get ganked. Oh, absolutely. We oh, oh, I wonder if in a horror movie, which one of us would die first. I, it's such a toss up because um, I'm such a loud, annoying asshole, and you're sort of like I feel like kind of coming in like, hey guys, like you know, what I, I mean? you, um, I would die very <laughs> first. I, I don't want to get la 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 laid. I'm too scared of g g g girl. Like, oh, okay. I no. feel like that's the you, right? If 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 I was virgin, <laughs> if it was if I was virginal, then yes, I would uh, survive a little bit. But uh, we both provide a level of like loud safety of comedy right and so the comedy guy is always like third to last to go because it definitively proves that the audience like doesn't even get thematic relief from the terror uh-huh whereas like uh you know if we were just like a dumb jock we'd be easy to we'd get we'd die real early here's my question to you okay this is a total this is me oh, going but, off on a tangent but well, he, well what were you saying? we're actually making a really big connection because what the Predator is at a certain, it, it jumps genres a little bit. It kind of like shifts between tones, but there's a solid second there where it is the most trope twisted slasher movie of all yes. time. Where instead of helpless teens, these are the most capable adult macho men to ever live, and they're taken out one by one, each for by like a hunter better than themselves, but that, for sins, but like they're all punished for individual sins. I'll ah, get into true, that. true. Um, but I wanted to take it to just the just the one thing I love about movies like these, and they're usually horror genre. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm already into the movie without the monster. Like, <laughs> this would already be a really cool special ops military movie with like a really good motley crew. Going in. Dirty the, Dozen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, like totally. Schwarzenegger, Ventura, like, Clive. Carl Bar fucking Carl, Weathers. Carl Weathers, rather. Clive Barker, Jesus. Um, Carl Weathers, like, such a good cast for that kind of thing. I'm already in. Mm -hmm. Then you give me, on top of that, this, like, dope 
monster, you know, action horror thriller sci-fi. It reminds me of movies like uh, The Descent. I think is a really good example of that, where like the the whole part where they're just cave dwelling is fascinating enough, and then a monster arrives. You know what I mean? You're, you're like, I love that because it it just. I'm I'm just sold over and over again throughout the movie, and I'm just like the moment I might be getting bored of one aspect of the film, a new element shows up to keep me going. You know, also the idea too of the fact that like giving making it an alien, not like a human hunter, mm-hmm. not like a monster like traditional monster like that you would find on Earth, like because it could have been about like a killer fucking alligator. Or uh, they unop- they open an Aztec tomb and an yeah. ancient fucking Quetzalcoatl comes. But it being him. an alien from outer space, you got all this cool tech you can pull <laughs> out of your ass. You can just constantly pull out like, oh, now it oh. Oh, uh, uh, we're we don't know what to do with this part. Hey, now there's like this laser weapon we're gonna fuck around with, or or this crazy like yeah. I mean, you know, and obviously like the fucking spiky the, the, you know, Wolverine, the Wolverine claws, the yeah. three laser, the shoulder blaster. Yes. Again, these are crumbs of world building that just Stan Winston and a couple of other like effects guys put into this movie, and that's launched entire this entire franchise. Yeah. Like no one's actually like you know no Predator movie is gonna be like. Hey, you ever wonder about Dylan's time before he joined the CIA? Yeah, yeah. That's right. We're getting into Dylan origins. <laughs> and this, like, no, it's just about, like, this is the, I forgot the name that they use for the Predators, like the Urati or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's just like, it's all this fucking shit but about it the make, aliens. It would make sense that the franchise would continue because it's just too good of a concept. The idea that there is, like, a species of aliens that just go around to other planets, like, collecting artifacts or collecting like body parts, trophies. They're hunters. Tro- yeah, trophies f- from uh, uh, any whatever uh, life inhabits there, especially the most dangerous life. What was something like there. El Diablo? There's something demonos. <laughs> <laughs> I love. Well, I love. Um, in Mortal Kombat, you you see the trophy case. He like adds a skull like in the cutscene after he wins to his trophy case, and you're just like, that's such a badass. Thing. So, of course, they would make more movies, but this is the movie that started it all. I personally saw this, I think, when I was in middle or high school, and I'm pretty sure the first time I saw it, it was like the TV version of it, which is hilarious. <laughs> I don't even know how they were able to even put that on normal television, but I'm pretty sure I saw that version of it, and I had no idea how sucked in I was going to be. And it has ever since been the kind of movie that I can throw on whenever, wherever, and have a great time. It's just a fun romp. It's an hour and 40 minutes. It happens at you, and it just it never, it never lets go. I think there's like five minutes of like normal dialogue in the very beginning of the no, movie, do, and then it is just this is a action thing. fucking horror. He did this time. in Die Hard as well. Yes, he, by the way, the director did directed fucking Die Hard is the guy who directed this movie. As well as Rollerball? <laughs> 2011's Rollerball? Um, we'll get into why he went to jail. Don't worry. Sure. But uh, McTiernan does a very good job of taking the time to humanize the characters, letting that first act kind of just like breathe and give you a sense of place for the chaos that's going to befall them later. Yes. So it's really like 20 minutes before the first big like gunfight or explosion happens. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you get like kind of this weird pastiche of like special ops guys and Vietnam helicopter shit. And, you know, you kind of understand like, oh, he's the button up government stooge. And he's like the uh, green beret with a heart of gold. And he's Jesse, the body Ventura calling everyone gay slurs. (laughs) 
And there's yeah, Hawkins. Yeah, you definitely get a, bit, a strong F-bomb right in the very beginning. I was like, that don't hold up. But I mean, it does, actually. It does. If, but if you want to, that's the way people like that talked, especially back then and still now. Yeah, it's like, there's one thing I know about men in the military. It's they <laughs> definitely don't use that kind of salty language anymore. And we got Hawkins talking about his girlfriend's just enormous yeah, yeah, giant. absolutely. Um, anyway, and Billy, the stoic Native American. Yes, and I like that whole that dude. That moment though, when he fucking just says "fuck it" and throws the gun in the water, and turns around, just pulls out his like machete or his like giant knife, and he's just like, "Let's go!" And then all you hear is just like, "Ah!" Like from the. <laughs> he didn't last a second. Didn't last a single second. You know, you can't just stand right up in front of the predator, man. He's gonna take you out. You gotta be sneaky and cover your ass with mud. That's well. There's, you know what? If we if we have time, I really want to get into it because there is so much thematic gold. Happening. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, what what a what a fascinating story too. And by the way, a lot of the st- quotes I'm going to say are from an oral history. God, I love oral histories, especially <laughs> when they have to do with subjects concerning subjects we cover in this show. It was Hollywood Reporter did a really good oral history of it, but too bad you'll hear me probably say like half the quotes in this episode. All right, let's get into it. The history of the Predator, Jake. How ex- excited are you? I see you trembling. You're trembling. It starts with Rocky IV. Yes, it does. It starts with Rocky IV and a joke in Hollywood that Rocky Balboa would have to fight an alien in the fifth film if it were made as he had run out of opponents on Earth. A bit he of a literally Goku. fought a Russian cyborg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, two screenwriters, their names are bro- uh, their and, and two brothers rather as well, Jim and John Thomas, decide to take the joke and run with it as an actual film concept. They were both born in the town of Needles, California, and raised in Bakersfield. Both of them worked as a lifeguard, teacher, ditch digger, and carpenter. But it was Jim that had the idea and reached out to John to help him out with it. Jim Thomas said, I had the basic idea for Predator, which at the time was called Hunter. And my brother was laid up from a back injury from the beach. So I said, well, do you want to write a script with me? And he said, sure. We just sat out on the beach and composed this thing over a period of about three months. The original idea was, what would it be like to be hunted by a dilettante hunter from another planet the way we hunt big game in Africa? And it involves several dangerous alien species and their various targets. To clarify that, yeah, multiple hunters and their their prey are multiple different alien species as well. It's like it was way more of a sci-fi film at, at first, in other words, if, uh, by that description. But they ended up paring it down to just one hunter from space hunting, quote, most dangerous man, which was, of course, the combat soldier that we get in the film. Also, though, you have to realize this is very timely in a certain way. We've already gotten a slew of, like, Vietnam films and things like that to the point where now it's like, let's take the tropes from all those movies or and, and the types of characters that we've seen in those, like, Vietnam films and things like that and let's like you know that's all played out let's add this layer of sci-fi horror to it right I think that's where they get to that because this is the late 80s at this point we've had our apocalypse nows we've had our platoons right now let's throw a fucking alien into the mix and see what happens then so uh, they decided on Central America since at the time that was the destination for the most special forces operations 
Jim Thomas said, so after we had written this, we sent a barrage of letters out to every agent and producer that we could think of and got rejections back from virtually everybody. Through a friend of mine, I heard of someone at Fox who was a reader. We got the script to this reader, but there was a change of administration at that time, and Larry Gordon's administration was just coming in. So this reader turned it over, from what I've heard, to Michael Levy or Lloyd Levin's assistant or reader, and they happened to read it, and these young junior executives who had just come in there really liked it and so they ended up selling the script without an agent or a lawyer jake Mm. selling a a script in hollywood i don't even care how long ago this was without an agent or a lawyer to push the script through the production studio system is is right it's just bafflingly difficult right i mean very against the odds you know what i mean uh yeah but it's still you know, Hollywood is filled with stories of, like, finding scripts shoved under a door and, you know, it's still somehow making it out. It's crazy. And, and, and Which is why, obviously, if you see anybody who is famous, interrupt them. Uh, just get right into their face. Yes. Uh, take out your with phone. With your script. Yeah, yeah. yeah take out, don't even. Hand. Yeah, yeah. Just, um, just show it. Show your phone with your script in, like, really tiny text. Yeah. And be like, please. Just read the first page. <laughs> just read the first page. Yeah, corner them. Get them scared. Yeah. Okay? If they're scared. They're, they're more likely to say yes. Scientists have proven this. This is a psychological Maybe play the attack. pity angle. Yell something like, my medicine. I need my medicine. Right, right. My my uh, whole family's dying of different diseases. <laughs> I, I all If I saw the script, I, I could feed them all and, and cure them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? And then kind of like just give them like a weird dick tap. <laughs> oh, to show dominance. To show dominance. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. key because you got to have the good body language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if they if they flinch then you know you'll definitely sell the script. If they don't flinch, just keep dick-tapping them until they flinch. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, hey, Jake and Holden, if this is the secret to success, why haven't you done it? And the answer is, we like a challenge. I'm too lazy to write a script. (laughs) Oh, you like a challenge. I'm just too lazy to actually sit down and write a screenplay. Just the word boobs on Mars (laughs) by Holden McNeely. Boobs on Mars. I'm going to go write it. I actually have written a few film scripts, but... um, the problem is not writing the script. It's writing a script that you don't think is a complete uh, pile of shit. That is the hard part, I think. Well, that's what first drafts are for. Absolutely. John Davis said uh, when it came to getting attached to the script with the Thomas brothers, John Davis is the producer. He's the one who had a lot of involvement in getting this made. Said Basically, they had slipped it under somebody's door at the studio. And we found this script, and it was pretty amazing. I mean, literally, it came out of nowhere. And Arnold basically said to me, You're going to be a producer. You should come to Mexico, and you should produce this. So I did. He had just got done working on a little-known film called Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) And so uh, they were ready to move into the second phase with with Schwarzenegger, the second film. And uh, Schwarzenegger's schedule was actually delayed Uh, shooting for several months but that just allowed producer joel silver another producer on the film to you know who joel silver is we've covered him yeah the matrix guy inventor of ultimate frisbee yeah he's he rules he's the best he was able to get a small rewrite to the script done by david peoples and david peoples i don't know wrote a couple of like whatever he screenplays like blade runner and 12 (laughs) monkeys i think he was able to come in there and give it the shine it needed to make it the classic that it's become today the classic that all critics hated when it first came out apparently which i think is hilarious uh roger ebert liked it roger ebert thought it was fine he was like (laughs) as a thing that is trying to be this it is this that's like what his review was pretty much i like the people just being like hey instead of a bunch of complicated weird villains kind of running around what if it was a single villain with a purpose (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's probably what uh, david peoples added to the script 
so this is where John McTiernan <laughs> comes in. John McTiernan. Also, uh, the Arnold's character Dutch has a brother named Ditch, who's <laughs> just they're constantly hugging. I don't understand what this character. <laughs> Um, so John McTiernan was born in Albany, New York in 1951 to a lawyer slash actor father. He attended the Juilliard School, then got his Master of Fine Arts at the American Film Institute Conservatory in 75. If you're not aware, Juilliard is like a very prestigious performance school. It's like the Harvard for actors. American Film Institute, exactly. American Film Institute, also very prestigious. He wrote and directed his first feature film in 1986 called Nomads, starring Pierce Brosnan in his first lead role. Have you ever heard of Nomads? Never saw it. The uh, VHS box art looks badass. It looks cool, though. It was about a French anthropologist who is an expert on nomads and stumbles across a nomadic group that ends up being a group of trickster spirits that took on a human form to kill. But it was actually kind of shit on in terms of critical reviews and things like that, but it really stood out for this specific group of people. John Davis said, I had seen a small movie John McTiernan had done. Referring to Nomads. That was really, really, really good. I made Larry sit down and see John McTiernan's film in a screening room because nobody had ever heard of him. I said, this is the guy that should direct the movie. And Arnold liked him, and that's how it happened. So in the director's commentary, where John McTiernan um, you know, goes through the movie, he has this very serious but like weirdly <laughs> aloof voice. He's just constantly like, uh, you know. This is a moment that stuck out the most. Uh, when Mac like stabs the scorpion on uh, Dylan's shoulder and then like pulls it up because you think like he was trying to attack him with a knife. McTiernan's like, yes, that's right. It's a real scorpion. I killed a bug. <laughs> Stop protesting. <laughs> it was just the one bug. I promise. Oh, I love it. That's such a, a 80s action movie <laughs> director's like eye rolly, yeah. you know, <laughs> like discussion uh, about that. According to him, he was one of several actors up for the role and his agent gave him a tip that he should hire a guy named Jake Bloom, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger's like lawyer and agent, ah. to be his personal attorney. The sole reason being that Jake Bloom, if he was hired, would see McTiernan's name on the list and realize that he'd get an extra commission uh-huh. if he was cast. Ah. And so through that connection... Apparently, Bloom like pushed Arnold to go for McTiernan to help like secure McTiernan, and like that's what he claims is was the difference. You know, when people think like, oh, he was this untested director, how did he get in charge of this giant production? Just a lawyer, yeah. just a little bit of Hollywood finagling. Yep, that's how it happens, ladies and gents. It's so much more about networking than it is about the actual. It's working. the networking. The power stance, the yep. dick tap, and your very convoluted story about your sick family, and you're on the highway to Tinseltown. <laughs> Throw in mm, just a little dash of pedophilia just to get it going. I mean, you know, it's just when it happens, just, you know, omerta, man. Don't break the code. <laughs> uh, now here's where Arnold Schwarzenegger comes in. A very brief history of him. By the way, he gets his own episode eventually, yeah. so I'm not going to spend too, too much time. But here, here's a little bit of a lead up because this is an, actually a big moment for him, this film. This is a big turning point. I mean, Conan's the real turning point in terms of like making him the viewed as an action star at, off of being a bodybuilder. But I feel like this solidified him as a go-to leading role actor mm-hmm. in big action movies. 
so he's born in 1947 to his father, who's a local chief of police. And I had no idea. I did not know about this. A former member of the Nazi party who was wounded during the Battle of Stalingrad. And uh, hey, wouldn't you know, his parents were very strict. And his father was a complete asshole that physically abused him a lot. And had a preference for his old elder son, which I love the name. Meinhard was the name of his elder son. Uh, and of course, he always loved Meinhard much more than uh, uh, Arnold. The money was very tight around the household, and as per his father's influence, he became very active in sports, and he picked up his first barbell in 1960 when his soccer coach took the team to the local gym. He soon chose bodybuilding as a career at age 14 over soccer and was lifting early. He had a crazy successful bodybuilding career that started around 1965 with him winning a junior Mr. Europe at 18 years old. Then he went on to win five Mr. Universe competitions and seven Mr. Olympia wins, a record that would not be broken for many, many years. He got his foray into acting as Hercules in the 1969 film Hercules in New York, and his accent at the time was so thick and so terrible that the lines had to be dubbed after production by somebody else. This is where we're at, like in terms of him as actor. He started out as an actor that was un- an American action movie actor that could barely speak um, in English. Uh, it wasn't until the sword and sorcery epic Conan the Barbarian that gave him his breakthrough in 1982 and sealed him as an action star go-to in the 80s with movies like The Terminator, The Running Man, and Commando, and that, of course, led to Predator. So McTiernan talks about how this uh, movie was a huge learning experience for Arnold because he was played against Carl Weathers. Yes. And by the way, Rocky huge huge <laughs> like we just said just coming off of rocky 4 it is this mainstay thing and carl weathers therefore is like very big uh star in film at uh around right around this time and so like mcturn talks about how uh when arnold wasn't being like the big man on campus and leading like workout excursions and chatting up the crew and being like the kind of you know extroverted movie star guy that we all kind of you know his reputation builds him to be he would just, like, sit quietly and just watch Carl Weather do his scene. Yeah. You can tell. Like, when watching this movie, the scenes where they're playing off of each other, Carl is acting his balls off and giving a real level of intensity, and Arnold is, like, having to up his game. He can't yeah. just get by on, like, one-liners and, like, charm. And for what everybody said, it's like, I, it seems like he was aware of his potential trajectory, and so he took the filming of this movie very seriously. He was very regimented. He even got married at one point during filming and was only, and like like left, got married, did a honeymoon for two days, and was right back on set. He was the consummate professional. Jim Thomas, uh, writer Jim Thomas, said of uh, his first meeting with Arnold, Our first introduction to Arnold was at John Davis's father's house up in the Knoll, and it was in a hot tub. Typical Arnold. I remember Arnold, he was actually very serious. He wanted to know about this character that he was going to be playing, and we told him, you've just done a movie, Commando, which we really liked. It was a lot of fun, but when you first are introduced, I think this uh, first scene, he's carrying a tree over his shoulder and has a chainsaw in his hand. That's a cartoon character. You'll play this guy more like an everyman. And at that moment, when you are crawling up through the mud and this incredible creature is about to destroy you and you have no, no weapons or anything left, that's a real hero's moment. And then the fact that you have an escape, the mud protected you. Now you've got the chance to rise back up and take on this creature and be a real hero. And I think that really spoke to Arnold Schwarzenegger quite a bit. So the crew is assembled. The, uh, the script is finalized. 
and uh, well, I want I wanted to talk about the casting a little bit. Oh, okay. Have we have we gotten into that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually, you know, yeah. I you know what? In my head, we've we'll, talked we, about all we're, these guys. No, we're going to talk about the cast like once they're in Mexico. But no, these guys were cast not in Mexico. Well, let's hear it straight from Jackie Birch, the casting director. I remember when I first read the script that I thought, I want to get all Vietnam vets in this movie, and that could act. And that's how I met Jesse, the body Ventura. Jesse had a great manager, Barry Bloom, and he kept saying, you got to meet him, you got to meet him. He was a wrestler, but he was a Vietnam vet. And the second I met Jesse, I knew that we had the guy. And I brought him over right away to Joel. And we loved Bill Duke from Commando, so that was a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. It's uh, Bill Duke famously, like, you're about to get your ass kicked by a Green Beret. Yes. And followed by the amazing line, I eat Green Berets for breakfast. (laughs) If you just need a very shiny black man to just (laughs) shit-talk Arnold Schwarzenegger, you get Bill fucking Duke. And Carl Weathers I loved from all the Rocky movies, and I thought he'd be great. Carl Weathers actually played defensive end in college football before signing with the Oakland Raiders as a free agent in 1970, but he didn't get to play very much before finally being released. After that, he ended up going back to acting school at San Francisco State University and started out in black exploitation films like Bucktown before getting his big break with Rocky alongside Sylvester Stallone. Jesse Ventura, who was the son of two World War II veterans, and he served in the U.S. Navy from 1969 to 1975 during the Vietnam War, but never really saw combat. He went into professional wrestling a while after leaving the Army, performing as a heel, then went into commentary after retirement, with Predator being his first big acting role. It's kind of crazy, like, looking at the bio of Jesse Ventura's life. He did so much shit before he did Predator and, like, had this whole crazy acting career into political career he has lived a wild life like there, there was so and he even went and wrestled about during filming he had to leave for one weekend and then come back as well so, i'm sorry arnold i have to go fight the iron sheik <laughs> <laughs> uh exactly that's probably exactly what happened it was producer joel silver that brought in sonny landham to play billy sonny and- landham has was like a he always played like a scary tough guy in like gangster movies he was uh-huh. in the warriors and he was a notorious volatile person. Yes, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. He's one of the more interesting wild cards thrown into the mix. John Davis had this to say about putting Shane Black in the movie. Shane was a really great writer who had just written this great script called Lethal Weapon. We wanted him to do a rewrite on the Predator script, so we put him in the movie because he's an actor. And we got him down there, and we asked him to do a rewrite, and he said he was an actor in the movie and not a writer, so he was the first person we killed. He got killed seven minutes into the movie. I mean, that's <laughs> empirically untrue, but... Uh, it's just funny they tried to trick him into doing a well, rewrite hey, by Well, hey, while you're him. here, yeah. hey, are you the most desirable screenwriter in Hollywood right now for action filmmaking? So, like, while we're in this jungle, would you mind, like, maybe just taking a look at this? Just taking a little punch-up? Oh, uh, that was what I was going to say about uh, McTiernan earlier. How dare we leave out the fact that he directed Last Action Hero? How dare we? Last Action Hero is a great movie. It's, it's so good. People weren't ready for that level of meta commentary and Completely. humor, and it's amazing. It's the people's fault. Yeah. I blame humanity. <laughs> uh, I blame humanity on so many things, but Last Action Hero not being a giant hit, top of the list. People, I, I've seen a lot of sources claim that Shane Black did do some punch up on the script, but he was uncredited for it. But in all of the uh, media from like it's from all the official media, he, yeah, that's the story. Is he got dragged out to Mexico and was like, "I'm not gonna do that," and then they sent him back. Is this when we should talk about Jean Claude Van Damme? 
I mean, yes, the guy who has played the Predator. <laughs> they brought him in. Uh, the muscles from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme. What a weird parsing this out was so funny and the oral history it's kyle Larris is like all right we have to stop for a second and this oral history it just explains something really fast uh everybody has a different reason why they say jagalad van damme got fired from the movie like there's like a million different theories so so if you didn't know this jean-claude van damme was originally the predator in the film but got replaced by kevin peter hall and it is so odd. So the Stan Winston School has an amazingly in-depth blog that covers almost every film they've ever worked on. Oh, hell yeah. And it's really great. And this is the breakdown. So obviously, <laughs> you need a monster in your monster movie. And the uh, original team that was uh, tapped to create this monster was a studio called Boss Film Studios, uh, started by an ILM uh, veteran, Richard Edlund, and they did the special effects for Ghostbusters. They did a bunch of like really poltergeist, big trouble in Little China. These are not scrubs. These are not idiots. These are people that knew what they were doing. And they presented this kind of dog mantis insectoid being that was like very tall and uh, was walking on these kind of triple dog leg jointed legs. Think of Doug Jones in Pan's Labyrinth with those like crazy like leg rigs that they had to work with. And so even at the time, they showed the maquette to uh, McTiernan and Joel Silver, and they were like, hey, so this is a, this is one of the designs. And they were like, yes, that is our monster. It's got a freaky dog head. It's got a weird bone thing going on. We love it. It's great. And Bus Studios were like, okay, I'm glad you like it. Uh, it's going to be, you know, please be very careful about where you shoot this thing and like how it's how you're going to like actually incorporate it into the movie because it's going to require a lot of like very specific like cranes and like and you know harnesses and all these things to get it to actually move correctly in like the jungle like you can't just like throw it on a set you're going to have to really think about how you incorporate this monster and they were like sure got it great it takes a very long time to get it done and it finally arrives on set and McTiernan and the whole cast look at it and are flabbergasted at how awkward it is. Um, and by the way, there's like kind of two different versions of it, right? Oh, yeah. They have the Mate version. We'll talk a little bit more about the camo effect. But just know that in order there's, to achieve the camo effect, they essentially have the green screen or really red screen suit because it's all in red. That is Bright, like, like almost pinkish neon red. Really weird looking. So that it contrasts against the uh, green jungle and can be chroma keyed out easily. So they can put put in the camo effect. But then also the other version of it that is the actual like seeing the, the creature version of it and the, the, with the dog head. And um, but the red version looks like a, they, they commented about how it looked like a giant chicken or something. Uh, you can you can find photos of it. I saw you posting some stuff on Twitter. Oh, it's amazing. You can actually see uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme in the suit, in the red chicken head suit. It's kind of more like a skeletal dog head, I feel like. Right. But again, with the matte red, you can't make out any details. Yeah. So you don't even you don't even know what you're looking at. Yeah. And he literally jumps off a trampoline and like <laughs> awkwardly scampers through the woods and runs head first into a tree <laughs> and he just like shakes around and is like um i'm okay i'm okay jocelyn van damme 
hates it. He thought he was going to be an action star. He thought he was going toe to toe with right. Arnold. He thought he could show up his cool moves because well, and that's this- what they wanted. They wanted like they the reason why they chose him was because initially they thought the way that uh, the creature was going to move was was going to be more ninja like. Was going to be more like shifty and crazy but you know it's very different he's like, jumping through the trees he's like yeah he's supposed to be this hyper agile thing but yeah. the rig is not built for it it's just you can't do it in the costume so what they have is something out of a bad 1950s movie where there's it's just a man in a static suit going like rrr and just kind of like shuffling from foot to foot and they hate it. So, um, yeah, it's not it. working. But at the same time, there's like all the, everyone has a different reason for why he left. So one is he passed out too much. Another one is that he complained too much and they fired him. Another one was just the height difference. And, uh, you know, obviously Kevin Peter Hall, who replaced him, is seven foot two. John Club Van Damme, notoriously a short action star. Also, just what you're saying, just the studio's super unhappy with like what they're seeing McTiernan from the daily. does test footage. For the explicit purpose of scaring the studio into making them redo the monster. Uh, yeah, but then he gets replaced pretty quickly with Kevin Peter Hall. Kevin Peter Hall, by the way, a former high school basketball star that went on to play monster roles. You might uh, remember him in a little-known movie called Harry and the Hendersons. He was hot off of Harry and the he Hendersons. He was Harry and Harry and the Hendersons. That, I forgot about that movie until just now. John Lithgow, classic. Go on, get out of here. Is the get to the chopper of that movie. By the way, completely forgot that get to the chopper was from Predator. Actually. Get to the chopper! <laughs> Hey everybody, it's me, your wacky wizard Jake, here to talk about this week's sponsor, Keeps. Guys, let's face it, losing your hair sucks, and two out of every three men will experience hair loss by the time they're 35. That's why we're telling you about Keeps, the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair that you have. These FDA-approved products used to cost a ton. Uh, I have nightmares about going to the pharmacy and trying to pick up these things. It was a hassle and I could barely afford it. But but now, now, thanks to Keeps, they're finally inexpensive and easy to obtain. For five minutes right now and starting at just $10 per month, you won't have to worry about hair loss ever again. Getting started is super easy. The sign up, again, like I said, takes less than 10 minutes. You just answer a few questions and snap some photos to complete your online doctor consultation. Then, a licensed physician will review your information online and recommend the right treatment plan for you. Then, it's shipped right to your door every three months. You don't have to think about it, just follow the instructions. What Keeps offers is generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but you've never gotten them for this price. Keeps treatments are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. Some men do even experience hair regrowth, and at best, men can get back up to 20% of the hair they lost. So for only $10 to $35 a month, it's a really good deal. But I understand, you need a little more convincing, so that's why they're going to give you your first month free. So you get to keep your hair, and you get a sweet deal. So get the confetti out and pour it on your head, because you're about to have a follicle party. If you suffer from hair loss, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Keeps, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. For a limited time, receive your first month of treatment for free. Just go to Keeps.com wizard. That's K-E-E-P-S dot slash wizard to get your first month of treatment for free. We're jumping around through time, but like basically this movie has a hard uh, halfway point where they basically run out of money. The suit isn't working right. 
And John McTiernan, like, just pulls the brake and is just like, guys, if you want this movie to be finished, you're going to have to give me a location I can work with and a suit I can work with. So luckily, at least... For, like, the majority of the film, you're, you don't really see the monster. The guys are being picked off kind of in an unseen way. And the final third of the film, it, the monster's there, but you really are mainly only just dealing with Arnold. So it was very doable to, like, take a break and then come back and film the final third of the film with essentially just Arnold. But in the meantime... The way you can tell when what was shot is uh, McTiernan got the, the shooting location was decided to be... Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, mm. the initial one, yeah. uh, which was this uh, on the west coast of Mexico, this resort town. And the uh, thing that the location scout didn't uh, account for was at the exact time and place that they were decided to record or, or shoot. I'm sorry. The entire forest floor. Uh, it was autumn. Mm, yes. And the leaves all fall from the tree. So you've, so got, the, you've literally had people like putting bags of leaves out. They had to like they ha- literally had a plant nursery that they had on hand in order. Just to- j- if you see like the foliage in a lot of shots, it is literally someone just jabbed like some vines on a dead looking tree. Yeah, big like Bodhi leaves everywhere. Kind of funny. It reminds me of District Nine a little bit, but they had the opposite problem. They had to shoot around the nice foliage and try to make it look as deserty as possible. And they're crunching on dead leaves the entire time. The forest floor is covered in dead leaves. A review that stuck in McTiernan's craw was, uh, this movie is just, it looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger is just running around a New England forest in, like, November <laughs> when it's supposed to be a lush jungle. Mm-hmm. He then, uh, when it was time to do the reshoots, got permission to do it in Palenka, I believe is the name of the city. Mm. Uh, please correct me. with Yeah, the yeah, Palenka. It started in the jungles of Palenka, Mexico, is what I have, and then it was finished in Mi- Miss Maloya. Okay. I miss Maloya. I could be wrong on that, but uh, yeah. But either way, two different But from shot to shot, if it looks like if it looks like a weird fake jungle, that's Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> if it looks like an actual jungle, that's Palenka. And a few other special effects shots and a lot of uh, the things done in the final battle scene were done in studios and spaces in Los Angeles. So in that time in between the reshoots or the shooting of the final third, they decide to pull in makeup effects master Stan Winston. It was Schwarzenegger who suggested him after working with him on Terminator. He had just come off of Terminator and so recommended him, was brought in. uh, He was brought into prominence in Hollywood with his work on The Thing. That's what essentially gave him his name, and he moved on from there. Jim Thomas said, We had tried to describe in, in the script as best as we could about the camouflage, the warrior stuff, the helmet coming off in the face. Not being artists, we could only go so far. And I remember when I first saw Stan Winston's drawings and stuff, I said, this is absolutely it. This is amazing. Who said it? Uh, Jim Thomas. Okay. Cause, um, the, the, uh, one of the script, script writers. According the to the Winston School blogs, um, there's two major contributors to the design of the – that for influencing Winston and his final design for The Predator. Number one was while he was at a meeting with Joel Silver – he couldn't help but notice a giant painting in Silver's office of a cool Rastafarian warrior, <laughs> which, of course, the ultimate Frisbee guy who fell ass backwards yeah, yeah. into action movie filmmaking had a cool Rastafarian warrior poster right. in his office. Of course. And uh, he was then, while sketching, on a plane with James Cameron to a Terminator like retrospective like screening in Japan, and uh, because it, that movie was huge in Japan. And James Cameron leaned over and was like, you know what I've always wanted to see in a cool alien design? One word. Mandibles. (laughs) 
And so all of after that, all the designs had those cool pointy side mouths and twiddly bits. And I will say, uh, having just rewatched the film, I think they do a really good job for, and I feel like this is so hard to, to achieve, of not showing the monster, not showing the monster, not showing the monster, slowly revealing the monster to you. Every time a new thing gets revealed, it's a cool thing. And then when he finally takes the mask off, that's a cool-looking monster. You're like, okay, that is fucking crazy-looking. That is scary-looking. Great. I'm on board. The Stan Winston monster design does so many things right that the uh, original monster doesn't, and it's kind of amazing. Number one, the monster is clothed and armored, whereas yeah. the uh, original monster is just kind of has an exoskeleton kind of just nude look, uh. which doesn't lend itself to the idea of this tribal culture right. and this refined hunter and this, like, you know, all the things you need. Totally. The uh, the tentacles, the dreadlock tentacles, you know, it place, you know, it even though it is a little bit racist to have like the savage race, right. noble race have like indigenous ethnic hair, it still communicates what it's about. The rings in the hair le- gives you more culture. And that fucking mask, that dumb mask with the thing, A, is great for a reveal. Yeah. And B, means that you don't have to like spend all the time articulating the mouth except for the final scene. And when that mouth does get articulated, it looks awesome. Like when he just, ah, just like opens up, full opens at you. Miles of looking. model airplane, of like model airplane electronics. Uh, I feel like the, at least basically whenever you think of like really good practical effects and prosthetics and animatronics in 80s movies, the answer is always there were 20 people each working an individual actuator yeah. so that coordinated it looked like this organic thing. So the big di- Oh, and it also it had human legs. It had regular yes. legs so the thi- so uh Kevin Michael Peterhall uh could walk through it. He could he could walk. McTiernan even put together a special bungee cord apparatus so uh the scenes where the predator is like leaping off of trees and like bounding it feels lighter than it should even though he's wearing a ton of things the suit itself has an integrated cooling system ripped out of a racing harness so that cold water is pumped through the suit allowing him to stay in it for two hours of filming which you know without it he would have died instantly he's in a vinyl coffin yeah and the moving mouth gives the monster so much more life and it kind of breaks the illusion of the man in the suit because there's there's movement there's there's just something to focus on where the old suit was just a fake dumb head kind of wobbling on top. Do you know how they achieved the moving mouth? That was one thing I meant to uh, uh, look uh, up. Like model airplanes uh, stuff. Actuators, electric motors, all cool. working in court. Like, there was an eight-person team that came down with Stan, and they operated all the little fiddly bits. That's awesome. That's really neat. A uh, couple little flaws here. Well, the one way that it was different from what they originally intended, the, the one way that I can see, is just that, it made the creature a slower creature than they had originally intended. But I think that totally works because in a way it's, it's way scarier to me to instead seeing like zip, zip, zip flipping at you to see a creature just fucking slowly like tromp towards you with like purpose way scarier to me and a costume flaw, not maybe not a flaw, but an issue they had to deal with, especially for uh, Mr. Hall he couldn't see out of the mask and had to memorize where everything was in rehearsals. <laughs> he later stated that the film was, quote, wasn't a movie. It was a survival story for all of us. And speaking oh, of- uh, Also a thing that Hull was an actual trained suit actor and could give the Predator more like presence and character in its movements 
Whereas Jean-Claude Van Damme was just this guy, like, ju- jumping around in a dumb costume. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, speaking of it being a survival story, let's talk a little bit about uh, the beginning of filming and getting into it. We kind of skipped over that to talk more about, uh, because Jean-Claude Van Damme into the suit is too good of a segue. Yeah. But uh, let's take a little step back, and uh, now we're going to do uh, go back to a little bit of pre-pro. A week before principal photography was to start, McTiernan had the cast go to Mexico for a week of military training with military advisor Gary Goldman, an officer in Vietnam who had commanded a rifle company and later recon work and special ops training. Goldman said, the first thing I wanted to do was see if these guys actually had what it takes to make it look like they're in special operations. So I took them out for a run. I was looking at these guys and most of them were pretty big guys, but in combat, if you can't run, you're fucked. Uh, it doesn't matter how many inches y- your neck is. So we're out running on the road, and they got strung out pretty good. I looked, I'd look back at Arnold every now and then, and I thought, I've got to hand it to him. He's trying. He's keeping up. He ran them through many different tactics in the jungle and critiqued them on that stuff. At one point, by the way, this is when Richard Chavez gets attacked, attacked by an army of red ants. Did you know about that story? No. <laughs> at one point, at one point, Richard Chavez, he just laid down to like get a little rest in the jungle uh, in between military drills, and he realized that he was absolutely covered in ran- red ants. He started running. He, he ripped all of his clothes off. He got completely butt naked. There were around 100 red ant bites on his body from this attack. Chavez said, and I'll never forget when the Mexican doctor came, and I have these welts, and he looked at it, and he says to me, you know, I never seen anything like this before. <laughs> so filming starts, as you said, in the jungles of Palenque, Mexico, in March of 1986. They were unable to use uh, an American crew, so they were given a Mexican crew to start. Why were they not able to use an American crew? Do you uh, know this? You, oh, so uh, McTiernan talks about this in the, the commentary. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was, uh, local laws, and there was, in fact, uh, an incredibly entrenched union, filmmaking union, in Mexico called El Sindicato. And El Sindic, you couldn't get anything done without Sounds the go-ahead. Like of mafia, yeah. Uh, of El Sindicato. And work was especially, like, so, uh, you know, people were hard up for work. And, you know, the idea of, like, cha-ching, an American movie, time to cash in. They sent literally hundreds of crew members to the site. None of them spoke English. And a few of the older guys were literally there for the explicit purpose of just collecting a paycheck and not doing anything. And because you couldn't replace these guys, you couldn't actually, like, get them in there or use American workers, McTiernan actually did this weird thing. I, I kind of I forget what it's called, like non-coms in military usage, where you get guys from outside to, like, integrate into the force so that, like, it, they're not blinded by personal loyalties too much. He got uh, Don McAlpine, the uh, director of photography, who was a miracle worker in this. There's so many, yeah. like... Rack focuses, pans, dolly shots in the fucking junk. You know, they're shooting with these giant cameras on tracks uphill. Like, yeah. they're doing incredible stuff. They got through Don McAlpine to get a bunch of Australian crew members. Here's the quote. The first day of shooting, I'd previously asked that all the lighting fixtures be changed from plastic fittings to ceramic because of the heat of the lamps I was using. I started to work that day, and all the lights started exploding because they hadn't changed them. And I realized then that the Mexican crew I had were basically schleppers more than an educated film crew. I pointed it out to Joel, and he said, well, what can I do? And I said, well, get some guys from the States. 
And he says, I can't get guys from the States. Can you get people from Australia? So I spent all night basically on the phone ringing up people in Australia saying, you're working tomorrow? Nope. (laughs) And basically getting to the point where I found people with a passport who were free and could get on the next plane to wherever we were. That's the way we crewed the film. That sounds batshit insane to do that on the spot like that. McTiernan does say that, you know, after the Australian teams were integrated into the Mexican crew, the level of pride in one's work kind of increased and that, you know, the the team kind of came together after that. Another crazy thing. This is amazing. I didn't realize that this is where this came from. Fucking old painless. Hmm? The chain gun. Ah, yes. So uh, Blaine, Jesse Ventura's uh, character. Ridiculous ass gun. Busts out a chain gun and walks around with it. And this was a logistical nightmare. Um, McTiernan was talking to the, you know, onset armor in charge of all the guns. And uh, it was kind of uh, part of the script that every character had a unique weapon to kind of like, uh, you know, they weren't even trying to sell action figures, but like uh, kind of like a dirty dozen kind of deal or magnificent six, uh, seven, whatever. The idea was, you know, it, you can tell something about their personality through their weapons. And uh, the armor was like, well, I got this thing, but, you know, it's you're supposed to mount it to a helicopter. <laughs> and McTiernan was like, let's see if we can get a guy to hold it. <laughs> and so Jesse Ventura, uh, w- first of all, it's this is where the portable chain gun comes from. Yeah, this was not a thing <laughs> until this movie, because, uh, you know, in the movie, you, you have to be out of your right mind to walk around with besides the actual recoil which like you can you know you'd think it would buck up but the actual hard part is like once you decide where you're shooting moving it from that point yeah it requires not just the ammunition because you see jesse ventura carries like a giant ammo box uh which at the rate of fire that the gun had would have gone through in like two seconds right it requires it's electronic it's supposed to be a part of a helicopter it requires hundreds of pounds of lead acid batteries to operate. So you cannot carry it. So in every scene where they're firing old painless, there's just a bunch of guys wiring it like out of frame. But Doom. Th- just think about every yeah. single everything from Doom to even Fortnite has a fucking chain gun. Right, right. All started in this movie as some just like dumb balls to the wall thing to be like, yeah, let's see if this will work. Pre- like Everything would come to a halt when it was time to fire it. I Everyone love to, would gather like around. every video game too. When you get that chain gun, you are like fifty percent slower. You can like barely, you're barely mobile. You know, uh, so yeah, it's it is hilarious. That, but I wish whenever you picked up a chain gun in a video game, a team of dudes <laughs> ran up and held it with you. And even then, like even think of like all the cool scenes with the chain gun. They still had to slow down the footage because you know you think like yeah yeah in yeah in reality it's like yeah that's it that was it that was two thousand bullets totally totally that was like it's it just blew my mind that's where that's from that's so funny also the heat was a motherfucker the ninety degree humid heat was horrendous especially for the actors and all that military gear holding as we were just talking about the gigantic guns. It was the middle of the summer. They had to bring in their own plants. We already talked about that, so I'm going to skip over that. But I love this part. This is a part I've been dying to get to. The uh, the gym that Schwarzenegger had uh, shipped to Mexico. It was set up in the hotel ballroom, and the big guys would all get up an hour and a half before breakfast and get the reps in. Jim Thomas said, I think that phrase, manly men, was coined down there. I think it was Arnold that kept saying, manly, manly men. 
You had that cast, and those guys were all pretty impressive. Then you had all these stuntmen who had to double, to double these guys and do all the stunts. So every morning, you had all these stuntmen and all the cast down there trying to get a good pump on. It was kind of comical. These guys are all trying to outdo each other. Carl Weathers was mortified. I think he was the one where they the, he would hide in his hotel room and like pretend to sleep through it when they'd bang on his door to come down. He would actually uh, go into the later into the night and, and go into the gym when no one was there and sneak his workouts in because they would just be so aggressive to work out with they would make you do like way more reps than you ever intended to you're just like aching aches and pains and then you had to go crawl around the fucking jungle for the rest of the day wielding these like massive guns and like dealing with all this crazy yeah they were already physically taxing themselves yeah and on top of that they still want to do the work i think on top of the fact that they would go to puerto vallarta eat a bunch of fucking street meat that they weren't supposed to and they all had fucking diarrhea shitting well also their hotel water had purification problems that led to traveler's diarrhea for many of the cast and crew you can actually notice uh throughout the movie there are certain shots again you know it's it was shot out of order so there's no like specific point in the movie where you can like but uh scenes where arnold is way more gaunt than he should be yeah and that is because uh not because of the diarrhea shitting himself uh when he was shitting himself from diarrhea they would do scenes with an IV drip in his arm just so he wouldn't die of dehydration. Yeah. But that was because they carefully budgeted his food. Like they had it prepared by like experts so that he wouldn't die of diarrhea because he's their star. Yeah, totally. Um, also, this is where we'll talk about how insane Sonny Landham is. Sonny Landham, he played Billy Soul. He was kind of nuts, especially when he drank and he liked to drink. Uh, Bill Duke said, uh, the actor Bill Duke, on the weekends when we weren't working, we would sometimes go to these clubs. We're having a good time at this club. And then we didn't know where Sonny was. And it got us worried because sometimes you got a little drunk, whatever. And so I forgot who it it is. Someone went, look over there, look over there. And Sonny is on the floor, crawling around the floor. And either he was touching or kissing women's legs on the dance floor. I think that's when they called the security guy to be with him. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> he was personally chaperoned around by his own security guy to keep him out of trouble and to not go and be insane. It was a for him to stay on the movie. They had to get him a security guy, not to protect him, but to protect everyone else from him. Um, Sonny Landham, uh, funny story, uh, was actually the third member of the cast yes. to run for governor. There are two future governors in the cast. Uh, no one would have predicted those two people would be Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesse Ventura, but also Sonny did get into politics and did win some stuff. John Davis said, Years later, Jesse would call me when he was governor of Minnesota and tell me that Arnold's physical policy in California was ill-informed. And I would say to my wife, a former wrestler is telling me that a former bodybuilder doesn't have the correct physical uh, policy. How crazy is that? (laughs) Uh, One more. Only in America, man. Hold on. You want to hear another mind-blowing fact about the uh, crew of uh, the cast of uh, Predator? Sure. Uh, Bill Duke, do you know what he ended up doing? What did he end up doing? He directed Sister Act 2. Dude, it's good. Joyful, Back joyful. Back in the habit. Da, 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 da. Back in the habit, also the name of uh, the current last podcast. You're down with G-O-D, yeah, you know me. Bill that's, Duke. That's Mac. so amazing. Good for him. The guy who swore he'd carve his name into an alien skull. So I want to circle back around as we get near and near to the end of the episode to a little what? bit more. What? We're near the end. I have so much more of. shit. Uh, uh, on special effects. Special effects. So I wanted to talk about a couple more things, how they got that camo look. Because if you think about it, again, you were talking about, you know, how having that giant railgun thing, uh, that was a precedent set. 
Think about the camo look. The camo look, how many times have you seen that in the future cloaking, stuff? Yeah, yeah, the cloaking, where there's sort of like an outline, but you can see through it. I mean, Metal Gear Solid, um, uh, countless films. I, I don't know. I, I should have like looked up a reference for how many times you see that in movies, video games, everything, right? Mm. It was visual effects supervisor Joel Hynek who talked about the camouflage, camouflage effect. So the, the camouflage effect was in the script as something that was invisible yet visible, which was the trick there. I had worked out a method for creating outlines of whatever, titles or people, and it occurred to me I could make a series of inline mates, that is, instead of making an outline, making an inline, and create a whole series of concentric inline mats. And then, in that series of inline mates, put the background shot separately and reduce a little bit per each inline and that gave me the camouflage effect which looked kind of like a fresnel lens and also little leaves on ferns and so it worked really well in the jungle because they initially tried it without that uh you know kind of multiplied effect and it had no depth it just looked like a paper cutout right and it was real chintzy looking mm -hmm. and that simple fix that simple like analog video trick saved those shots it was our greenberg associates that was the special effects house that this was all created at. Just want to give uh, credit where credit's due. Oh, so another thing they did is the fucking heat vision. I was about to get into it, Jake. Yeah, the thermal vision. I think you might know a little bit more than me at this point based on uh, the research you did. They used an Infometrics thermal video scanner as it gave good heat images of objects and people. Well, okay, so this is the story. Mm -hmm. When they first decided to have the heat vision as the method of the high-tech sci-fi method of tracking... Their solution was to get an actual heat vision camera into the jungle. And this was a highly sensitive piece of equipment that required, let's see, uh, modern heat vision cameras that you can get for your like cell phone actually use a similar thing. But they had to get the heat vision camera, the uh, infrared camera, aligned perfectly with a film camera so that they could overlay both because just the heat, the heat blobs like don't look like anything. It's only when you kind of like mix the two that you can like kind of see oh that's a guy and he's glowing so they had to align the cameras with like millimeter precision through what's called a beam splitter so that they were both looking at the same object um it required basically a, a u-haul truck full of processing equipment on like this three inch thick umbilical cable back to the camera this is expensive this is fidgety this is crazy and when they finally get everything set up um it doesn't fucking work because they're in 90 degree jungle heat. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, that's basically a human body's temperature. Right. So nothing is sticking out. The human yeah. body is giving out nothing. But that didn't deter them. They invent this cockamamie rig where they're hosing the jungle down with refrigerated huh. water and have a nearby bonfire where the cast has to like absorb heat from the fire Ugh. and then run onto frame and like wave around for a little bit so it looks like their bodies are coming out. This is expensive. This is awful. And McTiernan, above everything else, despite all the special effects, is a actor's director. And he's hating the performances. The actors hate performing it. Uh, in the commentary, he's talking about how he hates the technicians. The technicians are ruining all these moments that should be, like, amazing. So he actually goes behind the producer's back, like, basically pays out of pocket and gets reimbursed later to just get the video work done by a post-production house in New York City that works on, like, commercials. They fake it, 
and the fake footage looks way better than the actual cutting-edge thermal image. That's so funny. Of course it does. Yeah. Also, the glowing blood, the glowing green blood from the Predator was a mix of glow stick goo and luby. So there you go. Methicillin, I believe. Uh, they mm. wanted it to be orange, but it just didn't look right. Way better, I think. The I think the glowing green looks way better than, yeah, orange would have looked. Anything else about special effects? Because I'm pretty much good on that, Jake. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, one thing we forgot about the, um, the Predator is uh, between uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and all the other things they tried, because they just were so horny for the idea of this nimble predator jumping through the trees, at one point they did a test shot of a actual chimpanzee <laughs> dressed in red spandex. Oh my god, that's giving me um, Yoda vibes. When Yoda, uh, when they tried to make Yoda, what, what was it again? Yoda's a monkey? Yeah. Uh, uh, I put a red suit on a chimp, and uh, <laughs> instead of jumping around, he was actually mortified and uncomfortable and would end up hiding in the trees, unwilling to perform. Oh. So they abandoned the monkey idea. Also, the opening title sequence with the Predator arriving on Earth was done by DreamQuest Images, who also did the Abyss and Total Recall special effects. Uh, oh, yeah. the pig that Mac kills is uh, alarmingly fake. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Real it's fake super fake. Thing. It's super fake. But the oh. I will say the gore effects are so solid. Yes, the the skinless bodies, the the arm shot off a uh, uh, sequence. Mount just just billions of squibs used in this movie. Yeah, lots of blood, and it really does look great. All of that stuff looks fantastic. Uh, the giant like tree that Arnold and the Predator kind of fight atop of in the final scenes is uh, just a concrete paper mache construction. A lot of the larger logs. Uh, that they're you know they're clambering behind and like hiding behind don't exist in that part of Mexico, so they had to like make them out of uh, arts and crafts supplies. If you like pay attention, oh the big ex like the especially in the very beginning. Well, there's tons of stuff though. There's tons of explosions in this movie. Craig Baxley he was the second unit director slash stunt coordinator, and he was pulled into the project from uh, because. Joel Silver, the producer, was a huge fan of the show The A-Team, which was very popular at the time. He was responsible for a lot of the explosions and war-looking shots. There was literally points where McTiernan was screaming at Craig Bix Baxley, this isn't a war movie! What is happening? Right, like, it was just, He made everything so huge and so great. That whole opening sequence where they... Uh, uh, invade the the like the camp. You know. That is really really well done and looks really flashy and cool. But then you also have those great like the almost almost fireworks that happen when the predator essentially turns his weapon on Arnold Schwarzenegger starts firing wildly at him. Just like one of my favorite when I was a kid, the sequence where they all flip out and just start firing into the forest <laughs> all at once, just screaming and going crazy. I loved that as a kid. I was like laughing my ass off and like cheering and screaming. It was just so over the top and great. So all of those big weapony moments are awesome in this movie. Just, just big over the top. I miss '80s action, Jake. Damn it! I, I get it. I love superheroes. They're really fun to watch. Iron Man, very cool. Do, don't have a problem with all that stuff. But man, I miss these types of movies. They're so fun, and I feel like if if nothing else, people are just trying to like remake them a little bit. Like I know there was a Predator remake, and we'll, we can talk about that when we talk about the franchise. But uh, I just want to see more of these like big dumb soldier dudes, you know, Rambo two, you know, uh, all that stuff. Like big stupid soldier guys, just ah, uh, just screaming, shooting giant machine guns at aliens in the forest. 
I miss it. Do you have the the anecdote with uh, Jesse Ventura uh, having a bigger muscle than Arnold Schwarzenegger? No. All right. So this is something that I saw in a behind-the-scenes documentary. But I do is- not doubt exactly what you just told me because this is, movie is all about how big these dudes were. So, again, the workout schedule. Like, Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh, the star. He, was, he had a force of personality. Uh, Sonny Landham actually says this. Uh, a star is not just there to sell tickets. He has to take command of a set and become a leader. And so people were working out. People were competitive. And um, in the behind the scenes thing, Jesse Ventura very proudly um, <laughs> says, like, at the uh, at the wardrobe department, I was getting fitted for my outfit. And uh, they actually told me that I actually uh, my arms were one inch wider around than uh, Arnold. So, you know felt pretty good to be Mr. you know to beat Mr. Olympia. The body was number 1. And then uh they cut to Arnold and Arnold's like, "Oh, he told you that? Good. It worked." And he's like, "What?" He's like, "Um I told the wardrobe people to, I f- sorry my Austrian accent is weird and nonsense." Uh I told the wardrobe people to uh to tell him that. And then I and then I told him, and then I bet him that I had bigger muscles. A bottle we bet a bottle of champagne on it. And uh guess who was three inches bigger? <laughs> uh by the way, shout outs to the soundtrack which was done by Alan Silvestri, who just came off of Back to the Future uh, with huge success there. This was his first big action movie score. The movie was released in theaters on June twelfth, nineteen eighty seven. It Like we said, it didn't get the best reviews, but who gives a flying fuck because audiences flocked to it. It was number one at the U.S. box office opening weekend. It took number two for the whole year, second to only Beverly Hills Cop 2. Jim Thomas said, The weekend that it opened, we went around with Michael Levy and Lloyd Levin and a few of us to various theaters to see what the reaction was. I remember we went to a theater in Hollywood that had a great cross-section audience. They really got into it. They were screaming at the screen, Look out! He's going to get you! I remember it got talked about in New York, too, as kind of an in thing to see Predator. There was just something about it that was campy. Bill Duke said, I don't think anybody expected it to be as big as it was. It was a big hit, and all of us, if we walked down the street, we were recognizable from the film. And people showing the appreciation for it was wonderful. Uh, and, yeah, I, I I agree. I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, check it out. Just It's just a really entertaining, great sci-fi action romp. So, it's time for my closing thought. Please. The Predator is a movie about masculinity. Yes. It is about a movie where our heroes are established as the most aggressive, macho guys that can exist. And one by one, they are taken out, much like a slasher movie. And everybody who dies, it follows like a very slasher movie or, like totally. uh, order where they're established through the murder and the chaos. They're establishing a moral order. The first one to die is Hawkins. And what's Hawkins? He's Shane Black. He's the little weasel guy. He's the one who, like, yells about his fucking girlfriend's giant vagina. But really, he's all bark, no bite. He's a fucking poser. First to go. Not real. Blaine has the fucking bulk to back it up. He's a fucking meathead. He's got old painless. But he has no smarts. He's just raw aggression. He's just idiocy. He's also the bad kind of macho. He goes next. Mac? Mac's a survivor. But he's psycho. He just isn't all there. He's been broken by the wheel of having to fight and fight and survive. And he has to go. Dylan is a little bit smarter. 
He's Carl Weathers. He put on the tie, and you know he's the CIA guy, but he's still using. He's too businessy. But he's also he's using it. He lied. He lied to the yes. crew, and he got people killed. Yeah, he's because sin. he's using aggression for American imperialism, and he has to die because aggression and masculinity in service of empire and you know grossness is no true masculinity at all. Uh, and Billy, the noblest warrior of them all, uh, still won't back down. He still decides to die. He sacrifices, but still he wants to face down the the monster and he gets he doesn't even get an on-screen death. He just gets ganked. Meanwhile, you have to notice what does the predator do to all of his enemies? He skins them. He yeah. literally strips them down like they were a co-ed and <laughs> after like after in a cannibal holocaust. Um it's I know and I'm not. Uh <laughs> Poncho gets uh, ganked. Uh, he forgot to, du- you know, you got time to duck, whatever. At that point, he's literally, they just have to get it so Arnold is uh, unburdened to, for the final showdown. And now it's time. So all these versions of the tough guy die scared and screaming. But Arnold is left. We're down to Dutch. And Dutch didn't want to do this mission. Dutch thought this was a rescue operation. Dutch hated, did not want a part of this. And how does Dutch survive? He doesn't face the monster head on. He doesn't yell like, you know, he doesn't uh, go for him. He's not confident. He's scared. He is literally covered in mud and filth. He is hiding his, he's hiding. He's terrified. He's working defensively. He's using tactics. This is the new ideal man. The man who only strikes in self-defense. The man who looks at his opponent, who doesn't just go blindly relying on strength. He looks at his opponent's weaknesses and uses the environment. He becomes one with nature. He literally casts off the, the guns and metal technology of the, of the, of the, of, of the new world and becomes a new being reemerged from the earth. And then he drops a log on a monster, <laughs> but uh, he takes no thrill in the kill. Yeah. And that's important. And that's, you know, the ideal man, the one who should live in this world more so than even the predator who is literally from a warrior race. So hopped up that they went to the stars to find new shit to murder. But a real man does not thrill the kill. The real man survives. The real man protects what's important, which is that hot Mexican lady yeah. in the tank. top. By the way, there's a Mexican lady involved. We haven't even mentioned her this entire episode, but Hey, what are you going to do? That I could not have said it better myself, Jake. Fantastic summary of the whole film. Check it out if you haven't before. And if you have seen it before, watch it tonight. You're going to be so happy you took that advice. Thank you so much again for listening. Thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, if you want to support us further, check out patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got a bonus material coming out every single week for just $5 a month. It's a great hang over there. Uh, and so, yeah, look at those tiers and all that good stuff. But either way, thank you regardless of that for just listening, supporting, being so great on the Facebook page, everything. Uh, if you want to check me out further, check out twitch.tv forward slash holdnaders. Oh, follow me on Twitter at best Jake young. And Hey, leave a review on iTunes. It helps us out. Say the line. Hold. Get to the chopper! <laughs> oh, I think you actually want me to say, uh, hey, always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. 
Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.